Welcome back, my friends, to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for listening. I am, um, yeah, I've got, a, I think, an interesting podcast uh, lined up here. I, I want to return to my mini-series, We've Lost the Plot. So this would be We've Lost the Plot 6, number 6. And the subtitle is something like... Um, uh, how parables work on us, or maybe being worked by parables. And by parables, I also mean stories more broadly and mythic-oriented stories, stories with symbol and depth and nuance where the, where the bottom, where there is no bottom, where maybe our, our first pass, our ego says, I know what this is about, but it's like a trapdoor. Because the question of what they mean, in my opinion, what does a parable mean or what does a story mean, is, I guess, an important question. It's never an easy one. But to ask, what are they meant to work on or how do they work, I think is a more interesting question. And that's what I want to try to get at today. And parables are really a prime example of how mythic-oriented stories are meant to work on the listener and maybe even on the teller i imagine telling a story and a parable again and again it begins to work on you and then and and how you and even the teller's own understanding of it that certainly happens as a teacher of any sort the more you teach uh the more you realize you don't really know and even the things you think you you know about you're simply scratching the surface so that's probably true but also from a listening point of view um Maybe we learn to listen on different channels, like dialing an old-fashioned radio. Um, and maybe the moment we think, I know what this is about, actually, it's just starting to do its work. The story, the parable, and the symbols within them. So that's kind of where I want to go today. And um, yeah, I hope you find this helpful. I mean, I hope my podcast, you find something that's challenging, provocative, interesting, helpful, Um I think the the conversation that's happening around spirituality, religion, God, sacred texts, nature, the human soul, so many people are contributing to um, sort of the, the, the edge of change along these things, because certainly everything I just named uh, is going through another season of change. And to say yes to that and to wonder and to dream and uh, and to be surprised is the kind of conversation that I want to be a part of. And I, I imagine if you're a listener and, and have been for a while, you want to be a part of this conversation too. So thanks for listening. And um, the podcast has grown a little bit. I was even looking at some statistics and um, different um, all over the world, really, people are listening. Not, I mean, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people, but um, it's just amazing to me that um that that a conversation like this um finds its way into all kinds of un, unusual places <laughs> um so you can do your part by sharing the podcast with your friends and let them know put it on your social media stuff if that's uh, your sort of sort of thing um i just quit twitter by the way and every once in a while i go through a freak out but twitter was it i was like i'm done I've never actually um, tweeted and felt good about it. 
and I had to be honest about that. I, I, I tweeted something out. I was like, who am I talking to and who is it that's talking? And I realized I don't even like this medium and I don't like most people on it. So why am I wasting time? So I just deleted my account altogether. I'm still on Facebook, another wellspring of generative beauty. And then Instagram, I do like. So um, anyway, I don't know why I told you that necessarily, but please, uh, if you like the pad- podcast, uh, pass it on. Pass it on to your to your friends. Let them know. Um, or you can write a review on iTunes. That also helps. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can support it by going to my website, kentdobson.com, and becoming a, patri- a patron. Um, or going to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash kentdobson. I really, really want to thank my patrons um, for helping make this happen. That's why I have a new microphone. That's why I'm dedicating a, a little a more time and energy to, to cranking out more of these. Really, really, it makes a huge difference. Um, it's incredible to be sort of, um, I don't know what you would call it, an independent artist, I suppose, like this. What a strange and awesome format. And for people to say, yep, we're into that, we'll help support it. So anyway, thank you very much. Um, couple future oriented things. My, um, I have an online class that actually starts tomorrow. Um, what is today? Um, it's June 24th. So tomorrow, June 25th, I'm starting a one month online program. It's really for a small group of people and, um, it's done online and, uh, two hour sessions, uh, noon Eastern standard time once a week. So there are only four of them and it's designed to help deepen the ongoing conversation with soul. So lots of practices and ideas for how to deepen the conversation with your own soul and what I mean by that. Um, so that starts tomorrow. And I actually still have a couple openings because a few people dropped out because of time conflicts. So if you're super last minute, you can sign up. Plus they are recorded. So if you missed the first session, not a problem. You can listen to it um, and participate. That way we meet over Zoom. So it's kind of like being in a room together, which is pretty cool. And I did this in the winter and it was uh, pretty successful and rewarding for everyone involved. So that's coming up. I have two retreats in Seattle, Seattle area with my friend Ryan Meeks at East Lake Community Church in, uh, I think it's in Bothell, Washington. Taught there a bunch and uh, Ryan Meeks and I have led retreats for the last couple years. Uh, We call them Wilderness Within. There might still be a few spots left. One is backpacking, one is um, car camping. Anyway, the details will be over at East Lake Community Church. Google that, and you can find their website. So if you live in the Pacific Northwest and you want to do a retreat, that's a really good one to get on. Um, and I think that's uh, maybe one more. I'm doing an Israel trip next January. So six months from now, January, beginning of January, I think January 2nd to January 11th, somewhere in there. I love to do trips in January. I've done them um, well, I've done trips all, um, this is my 17th year leading pilgrimage-oriented tours to Israel and Palestine. Um, I like to go in January because there are fewer crowds the, and the weather is not as hot. Um, there's a couple plugs for it. And um, the main group is coming from Seattle, same church, but it's also open to the public. And a few people are coming from different places in the United States and a couple places in Europe. So um, there are spots open to that. Um open for that. Also, the details are on my website. So enough shameless uh, uh, self-promotion. And actually, I don't even know if that's what it is. I mean, yeah, I'm letting you know what what I'm up to, but 
hopefully I'm about something bigger, uh, which is deepening the conversation between soul and spirit and the world and nature and your own deepest calling. That's what I'm promoting. So nevertheless, let's talk about Let's talk about losing the plot with parables. And I want to come at it from an interesting angle. I just returned from five days of intensive work with Animus Valley Institute in Durango, Colorado. I was um, a participant in a dream work intensive, learning how to do the kind of dream work that Animus does. I'm in their guide training program, so this is part of the curriculum. Um, part of the program that we all have to go through, those of us who are trained to be guides. And um, very awesome. I mean, totally awesome program um, and intense and really rewarding. And a couple things struck me about dream work that is related to how I think about parables in general. And so I want to kind of come at, I want to talk about dreams for a minute, and then we'll transition to parables and what is a parable. And then we'll talk about one specific one, which is the, um, well, it has different names, but the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, the parable of the two sons um, has different sort of names. And my wife and I, in some uh, some friends of ours, were going through a similar situation and it reminded us of, of this parable. And so we started talking a bit about it and it just got me curious again, what are these stories? How did they end up still being talked about? Like the the parable of the prodigal son has inspired countless um, poems and paintings and works of art and interpretation and theology. And and yet, and it's so short. I mean, how can, I mean, are we just beating a dead horse, so to speak? Um, or is the, does it really contain some power? And if so, what is the nature of this? And how do you work with it? Um, is it really a matter of trying to figure out what it means? I'm going to argue, no, that's actually to go down um, a dead end. Um, Not that a conversation about meaning is irrelevant. I don't think so. But I don't think parables have a meaning that if you get, then you get the parable. I don't think that's how they work. And I'm going to try to wander my way toward that point. And and, uh, let me say one other thing. That is, um, that has to do with theology. So maybe some of you who even listen to this podcast get nervous when I start talking about the Bible. Um, maybe some of you get excited. I have, I have no idea. But I just know from experience in, in public settings, I tend to get those two reactions. Some of them are like, oh, cool, we're talking about the Bible. And, and other people, it, I make nervous. It's hardly ever neutral, um, which is which tells me something. It's worth meddling with if it's not very neutral terrain. But um, but if you're if you're not if you're not particularly religious or 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 you don't even believe in God, you might think to yourself, why the hell listen to a conversation about parables? I mean, what's the point? Um, I'd like to argue that regardless of their theological content, and sometimes they can be interpreted theologically, I'm actually I would like to set as much as possible the theology aside and not ask questions about what is this teaching about God? That's how they're primarily used. But I don't even think that is their um, initial aim uh, to sort of fill in the blanks about 
our images or I- ideas about God, maybe as a secondary thing. I'm saying that parables, just like any story, are meant to work on us and challenge us and provoke us and poke us and um, make us nervous and occasionally affirm us. And it doesn't matter what you what you say your beliefs are about God or um, your certain your theological um, uh, lens through which you read various things or or your theological lens through which you live your life. I don't know. Um, I'm saying that. Um, I, I guess I'm saying that they have a psycho spiritual component to it that um, stands on its own, regardless of where. Uh, you are theologically or where you stand in the in the great conversation of God or who is God or what is God or is there a God? Um, and uh, you, you might think to yourself, well, but they're still ancient, they're still old. I think the very principles that I'm going to uh, hopefully outline with, with at least some measure of clarity for how a parable works on us, I think can be applied to anything that is symbolic in nature, that has some symbolic depth to it, be it a painting, um, a, a, any kind of work of art, an installation, a, um, a movie, a play, a poem, a piece of music, an entire album. We can ask similar kinds of questions about what is being worked on. Um, so, in other words, if you make it through this podcast, I think you can apply this to several other uh, disciplines, if you want to, um, or kinds of literature, maybe is a better way to say it. So, um, let's begin with dreams. So, I'm not going to give you everything I learned at this dream work intensive. That's not the point. The point of the dream work intensive was for me to become a, a better listener of dreams. But here are just some abstract um, sort of principles or ideas that I've been learning about dreams. So the first is kind of real obvious, which is every night when you go to bed and, and you have a dream, your waking ego is not in control. You don't lay down before you go to bed at night and think to yourself, hey, I'd like to dream about, you know, someone super hot, you know. Um, or whatever, who knows what you might daydream about, not the same thing. And that's actually part of what makes them alluring because the ego is how we get through life. It's our conscious waking self. Um, it's, it only happens to be the tip of the iceberg and you have a whole underworld. You have the entire iceberg that is beneath the surface of the water. And every night we dip down below beneath the surface of the water and experience the vast plane of our own consciousness. In addition, um, this is more uh, Jungian, not only do you have your personal unconscious, but you have the collective unconscious. You have the great uh, symbols and images and archetypes that float around down there in the subterranean world. And every night um, you go to bed and you have something that no magic mushroom trip or um, um, what are other people talking about? Ayahuasca can touch, um, and it's free of charge. And the beauty of it is that the ego is not in charge. And in fact, we could say, I think it's fair to say, what is the point of dreams? I know some of you might believe even in some 
pseudoscientists, I say pseudo because I don't, I don't like their conclusions. They say, oh, dreams are just random firings of the brain. Um, well, the brain is, is definitely at work, um, all quadrants, all levels. There's a, there's a science to it. There is something going on with the brain. We know what's happening chemically. But I think we can also say they serve a purpose. And some of that purpose is to begin to work on who we think we are, to challenge who we think we are, our waking egoic selves. That's one a point of working with dreams in the first place. Now, how, how might that relate to parables? Well, a parable, when you hear a parable, is not a story of your own choosing. You're being told something. You didn't exactly dream it up. Um, so it's so, sort of confronting you in a way that a dream confronts you, just like a good poem or piece of music actually is kind of arresting. It's like, whoa, what is this thing? Um, so it has that quality. In that sense, it's um, I'm creating a kind of parallel between the two. That's number one. The ego is not in charge. Uh, and number two is related to what I just said, um, which is that the dream ego, first of all, I should say, there's something called um, the dream ego. That's what depth psychologists call the I in the dream. So, for example, I'm at the store and I'm talking to a cashier and I see a Snickers bar. Let's say this is a dream and it turns into a snake. All right. The I in the dream is the dream ego. The I who's going around seeing these things and, and, and interacting and relating. Um, and most people say, who are into at least the kind of dream work that I'm into, that one of the functions, again, of the dream is not only to put pressure on the waking ego, but to put pressure on the dream ego, to challenge it. That's why so many dreams are, are falling downstairs or you're flying and on top of the world, next thing you know, you're crashing. I mean, it's, it's almost as if your dream ego is being threatened, um, sometimes affirmed. That, that can also be the case. You're sort of held by by something. But oftentimes, something about the way you see the world is what's being challenged, the I and the dream. Um, number three is any character or image in the dream can actually work on us, challenge us, challenge the dream ego, challenge the ego more broadly. Any single thing in the dream, even the most insignificant uh, I saw a Snickers bar. It's not really that important. That that thing. If you can say yes to that, I'm talking about in dream work, and deepen into that image, there are often very subtle gifts in the most obscure images or characters, um, even the ones that you want to dismiss as not being relevant or important. So any character or image can work on us. Um, so if we re relate that to par parables, we could say, any image in the parable, and maybe we could say every single image in a good parable is meant to work on us, challenge who we think we are, every single one. Um, and that's actually, you know, uh, parables are, are, are stories that have been boiled down and boiled down and boiled down just to their essence. So we can assume that everything in there matters. And that's an important question when you want to approach a parable and you want to, if you want to open up a relationship with it and allow it to work on you, anything is fair game, just like in a dream. Um, and the fourth, fourth point is just to reiterate things that I've already, already uh, sort of hinted around at. The point of a dream, it seems to be, from a depth psychologist's point of view, slightly more from a Jungian point of view, is that the ego 
is being asked to change, to morph, and sometimes to die, to be challenged, to be killed, <laughs> to, um, to give up its grip on who, the, who it thinks it is. And oftentimes by encounters with dream characters or situations that have something to offer. Now, one more thing about uh, dream theory, and maybe this is uh, point number five here. So um, one of the things that Jung argued was that everything in the dream landscape is a manifestation of our psyche. And there are slightly more nuanced ways of looking at that today, but I don't really want to go into them. But that means, for example, if your mom appears in your dream, it's not telling you anything about your mom. And you might not need any associations with your mom to deepen into the dream. That's more Freudian, if you want to be technical, using the image um, to associate with another image, to associate with another image, and so forth. And that has its own merit, but it's not quite the same way as allowing the dream to work on you. So um, if your mother appears in your dream, it's some potentially some aspect of your own psyche that wants to get your attention. And it's coming to you in a form that you recognize, like your mom. Like, I just had a dream about, really, I did, um, having lunch with my mom, you know. Um, I was like, okay, I recognize this. Um, here I am being confronted. Now, what does it want? Um, who is this person? And then, then to really deepen into the dream is to deepen into the emotional content of both the dream ego and this character and the energy that's passing between them two and, and how do they really look and what do they want and so forth and so on. Um, but anyway, if each dream character is a manifestation of your psyche, you could say the same potentially of a parable where you have a series of, of unreal characters presented. And unreal, I mean, like if you think about the biblical par parables, there was no good Samaritan, it's a made-up story. There was no prodigal son, it's a made-up story. They're, they're, um, they're almost like caricatures that come up out of the story that we recognize. And um, we might make some parallels with the day world. Oh, the prodigal son's like my brother, or I was like my cousin, or like my uncle. But um, more importantly, we just recognize them. And in a similar way, I'd like to argue, they oftentimes symbolize elements of our, our own psyche that we're either out of touch with, don't know anything about, refuse, deny, or suppress, or a part of our psyche that's overactivated, that we're completely identified with, like a complex or, or a subpersonality. And actually, the other characters in the story um, are maybe uh, are, are luring us over to their way of, of seeing the world. So in other words, uh, a parable is like a, a dream potentially in that sense, where a story is told and the various characters in the story represent different aspects of who we are. And about the inner psychic confrontations that happen in the process of growing up. In fact, um, I don't want to make too much of this, but my guess is that's one of the primary functions of, of a parable, to introduce us to the psycho-spiritual landscape of our own change and growth. And I think only secondarily, potentially, might it tell us something about God or the divine or... or um, something external.
unless you want to be more nuanced and think about God as being internal as well. So um, these images uh, potentially are are refined or rarefied images of our own psychic capacities and the wars that are going on in in our psyches. And I think, um, and I want to make kind of a a sweeping statement, and I don't mean to be too harsh on Christianity, because I've done my fair share of that. And also, um, it might be much more out of my hangups than out of a real sense of truth. But I think one of the losses that happened, culturally speaking, with the emergence of Christianity is in Christianity, you have Jesus, you have God, the Father, you have the Spirit, you have Mary, um, you have Mary Magdalene, you have Peter, you have Paul. And um, in a sense, this is a pantheon of characters that tell us something about the world and potentially about the divine. But it's a relatively small (laughs) pantheon. And when Christianity became the dominant religion, very slowly, the the Greek pantheon receded into the background and actually was actively suppressed and marginalized and derided at, by the church fathers, trying to eliminate, quote, the gods. And I think one of the cultural consequences of that is that we now have a less sophisticated notion of what it means to be a human being. Because the gods, in that sense, were archetypal images of the full range of human experience. That's why there's so many gods and why they're at war all the time and why there are conflicts of interest and and and, and there are whole initiation rites into certain um gods and goddesses and their way of being. It was a true plurality based on, I think, the plurality of the psyche itself. Um, But Christianity in some ways tried to get rid of a lot of that and actually threw a lot of it in the basement, literally put it on demons and the devil and a lot of it went into the underground. And our notions of what it means to be a human being and to be in right relationship with God, I think, got narrowed. I think one of the I mean, all religions that become the dominant religion end up suppressing whatever came before it, always for a mixture of good and bad reasons, I'm sure, and um, good and bad consequences. I'm only mentioning that because um, parables, at least in my view, take us a little bit back into that pantheon, saying, what does it mean to be a human being? And the parable is a story or a little mini myth even that shows us, okay, uh, I have a complex relationship with myself and with my way of seeing the world and my way of, of seeing life itself. And um, so it's, maybe, it, maybe it's uh, Christianity or, or I guess we'd have to say more Judaism in the case of Jesus telling parables. Um, it's perhaps a Jewish substitute for the pantheon, the Greek, the Greco-Roman pantheon, the simple stel- the, the telling of simple stories like this, taking us into the complex world of the human psyche. Okay. If I lost you, forget about it. Let's, let's, let's uh, jump into the actual parable I want to deal with today. So um, here we go. There was a man who had two sons. See, you already know you're dealing with the mythic. You already know you're dealing with the archetypal and the symbolic. An archetype is a pattern that emerges over time. 
that is like a constellation. It crystallizes around something. And so you have a father. The father is an archetypal image. And you have your actual father. And then we have something like the, the, the great father. Yeah, and you have something like the father complex. So just to mention a father in the story already drags us into the world of the unconscious and the collective unconscious and the whole constellation around what is a father and what makes a good father, what makes a bad father. Um, suddenly we're, we're trapped in, in, in a hall of uh, mirrors, I suppose. And, of course, the father has two sons which is a super old biblical story. Abraham has two sons, um, Ishmael and Isaac, and then you have Jacob and Esau, the two sons of Isaac, and, and you have Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Um, of course, there's going to be a war, uh, a kind of battle, a kind of rivalry. That's what we would expect to find in a parable that starts with, there was a father who had two sons. Um, and actually, if maybe if you're listening to this and you're Jewish and you know you're back in back in back in the old days when Jesus was teaching, um, some of the these very images might come to mind. Oh, I see. All right, you know this is Jacob and Esau territory here. Um, yeah, so there's going to be a conflict. They're not going to be on the same page. Um, and we can also make a parallel to the day world. Brothers don't often get along. There's often a rivalry. There's often a complex and um, there's often a complex relationship between the two brothers. And in addition, the sort of triad, a complex relationship between the son and the father, the father and the son. And, you know, on around it goes um, in terms of its uh, complexity. Tell me you know what I'm talking about. All you have to do is have brothers and sisters and to have a father to know we've entered um, uh, the ter a terrain full of landmines. So here we are. The younger one said to his father. And what are we talking about? From an archetypal, symbolic point of view, you got a couple things going on. You have um, the question of youth in a relatively patriarchal culture where typically the older son is the one that inherits the uh, uh, family land and um, becomes the father of the household type of thing. Why? I mean, in some sense, that's just practical because if you have, you know, whatever, 100 acres of land and you have 10 kids and all that gets divided up equally, you have no uh, sort of home territory within just a couple generations. So that's the way they figured it out. However, in the biblical tradition, it's often the younger son that comes in with a surprise. Um, David is the younger son of, of his family, who later becomes the king of Israel. And that's just one example of about, uh, about 10 um, from the biblical uh, tradition. So anyway, you have the younger son um, coming in and saying of his father, um, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me what is mine, what is due. Um, give me my inheritance, in other words. Whatever that inheritance is, whatever you have planned for me, I want it now before you die. And apparently the father well, we don't know his emotional reaction to such a thing. That's another beauty of, 
of a good story. We're not told every detail, but the father divides up his property between them. So it's not just uh, he says yes to the younger son. He divides up the entire property between his two sons. That's the image. And here's the next part of the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. So archetypally, he's leaving home. He's leaving home base. He's leaving his territory. He's leaving his country, his father, and his people. That's a line from the Abraham story. And we could also say, um, from a symbolic point of view, he's uh, beginning to grow up, even though this seems like a slightly immature thing to do. Hey, I want my fair share, and we can talk a bit about that. But the fact that he has the courage to leave home means we're going to have a story. There's going to be a story. Because if he sticks it out at home, there's no story. At least from his point, give me my share of the inheritance. And what does he just sit around and watch TV? There's no story. That's so boring. But he sets off for a distant country. Um, he becomes a wanderer. He inhabits that wanderer archetype. And there he squanders his wealth in wild living. Now, if you're super moral and you're listening to this story, as you, and you're thinking, mm, yeah, figures. Of course, the young one is the irresponsible one, and I would never act like that. And, and of course, this is exactly what's going to happen when you say, um, yeah, here's your fair share of the inheritance. He, he's going to end up squandering and wild living, and I would never do such a thing, of course, um, would be a sort of um, moral superior, uh, morally superior way of hearing a story like this. But it's not terribly surprising that such a thing happens. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine. So now the earth is involved. Nature is involved. So you've wasted what you've had, and now nature is doing what nature does, which is not always play by um, the rules, or your rules, or your ideals, um, or what you'd like to see happen. And there's a severe famine in the whole country. And the whole country began to be in need, and he was in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. So now he works for a foreigner, in that sense, who sent him to his, uh, to his fields to feed pigs. And of course, I mean, you don't even need to be some sort of Jewish scholar to see the irony in such a thing. Pig, of course, pork is uh, forbidden in the kosher laws, and it actually had become a much bigger deal by this time period because of the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt, um, this is a Jewish revolt in 167 BC, started because some priests would not um, sacrifice uh, to Antiochus Epiphanes and to the Greek gods using pigs. They said, no, we're not going to do that. And it led to a lot of bloodshed. So this is no light... Um, it's not really funny to bring this up, that he's feeding pigs. It's actually a little darker than that. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So even um, to be in the house of a foreigner uh, feeding the animal that's most despised by uh, your culture and your society, is they're still better off. The pigs are still better off than um, this younger son than the place that he finds himself in. When he came to his senses, which is an interesting way of putting it, 
So he sort of like, I don't know, blinks a few times and, you know, it's like, what the hell am I doing out here? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. What am I doing? How'd I end up in this place? Which is a great second half of life question. Like, what am I doing? Like, uh, and there is a sense, I think, of responsibility that's even in uh, taking place here. He, it seems to be at least. I am out here starving to death um, in, a, in a terrible um, matrix of my own choosing. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. And again, in Hebrew, that, and in Greek, it just means to miss the mark. It's an archer's term. It's, I've gone astray, which human beings are prone to do. I've missed the target. Um, against heaven, maybe the way things are, against the divine, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, which we may be venturing into the world of shame. Um, you know, shame is a, is a totally natural human emotion and, um, and serves its purpose. It says something like, hey, you violated your values. Um, or at least it's time to re-examine, are these really your values? That's that flush of shame. Um, but here he's sort of perhaps even overly identified with it. I am not worthy. That's different than I've made a mistake. Um, but, and maybe he's even, you know, playing a, a bit of the victim card here. I'm so unworthy uh, to be, you know, even in your presence. So anyway, um, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So um, maybe you know this kind of person that um, we might say has low self-esteem, but more than that, um, makes a big show of their own unworthiness. I'm so unworthy of people's attention. Just give me the most menial things, you know, um, to do. Like it's not everyone setting up for a party, and you know, is there anything for me to do? I mean, I I would just clean the bathrooms if that's what that's what's needed. That's the kind kind of attitude that I think is uh, maybe being revealed in the younger son here. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He was stirred, you know, I mean, um, his, his emotion, his pathos, his, um, he, f- he felt a connection, a withness with this lost son of his. He had compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Um, and the son said to his father, I, I have sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, which is, I think, a bit of a kingly type image here, uh, where we're talking about robes and rings and um, a place of royalty and honor and that kind of thing. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And here I'm already reminded about um, uh, dreams, how they work on the ego. And, and maybe even kill the ego um, and the image of who we think we are in the world. Maybe something like this is happening with the younger son. Um, let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again and was, was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, and every good story, like every good dream, 
has a twist. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, I guess, doing what he was supposed to be doing. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of his servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And here we have his version of, um, of himself being told, where the, where the younger son was playing the I'm worthless card. Here the older son is um, playing the obedient one. I'm the obedient one. I'm the good boy. Um, you've got the, the black sheep and, the, and I don't know, the, well, the white sheep, the good sheep. Um, all these years I've been slaving for you, which is an interesting phrase, not working, but slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. I have done the right thing, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So it tells you it's a little window, I think, into his own psychic realm and the complexes that are driving him. If you ask the question, why was he the good boy, very directly, so he could get something out of it, so he could celebrate with his friends, so he could get his way in the end. Um, but when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, so he adds additional detail here about the wild living, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So how do we listen to a story like this? And how is it meant to work on us? So I, I guess a couple of um, initial thoughts. The first is... Um, when you hear a story or a parable, I think it's important to engage with it as a, a kind of um, dispassionate, might be the right word, um, listener. Like, huh, that's an interesting story. Um, and to listen to the whole story all the way through. And this is really hard with the Bible because um, if you grew up in a Christian environment or a religious environment, um, You've heard these stories before, and so it's a little bit harder, but I think the first pass is something like, that's an interesting story, um, and maybe to make some observations about well, who, who were these characters that appeared, and what were they like, and was there a twist in the story in any respect, and if so, um, what was that twist like? like? And how do people respond to the twist in the story, the surprise in the story? Just really basic observations about the nature of the tale itself. It almost goes back to what I was saying before with approaching any biblical story, which is what is the actual story? What happened? What took place? Could you summarize it in your own words? Could you? It's already short and sweet, but could you do it even shorter and sweeter? What, what's the essence of the story? is maybe the first past. And then I think the second task is a little like, um, what character 
Do I feel particularly、um, repulsed by or allured by? Like, for example, you might feel particularly repulsed by the younger son. You might think, God, what a waste, what a schmuck.、Um, who would go up to their own dad and say,、um, Give me my money now before you die. Maybe you feel particularly repulsed and say, and you might say something like, That's definitely not something that I would engage in.、Um, or you might even be drawn to the younger son. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's a painter, and he has a painting based on the, the prodigal son, and he was describing it a bit.、Um, and one of the things that he said I thought was really interesting is that he said when he was working on it, he felt a bit jealous. Of the younger son. Like,、mm, I wish I would have sowed my wild oats. I wish I could have done a little wild living myself. Instead, I've been basically stuck at home being the good boy, which is a bit of the image of the older, father,、uh, the older son. Excuse me. Or you might be drawn to the father. You might say, man, this is irresponsible behavior from the father. You might. Feel repulsed by his behavior. I mean, who would do this? That seems kind of stupid and irresponsible. Or you might say, oh, he definitely is doing the right thing. He's,、uh, um, he's trying to be a good dad here. That's what good dads do. They, they,、um, they both divide up their inheritance before it's time and even after squandering it, are, are arrive with open arms. That, that might attract you. Or that might, if you're really honest, Repulse you, which is why I was saying before, if we can leave aside the question of what does this tell us about God, I think we can enter more of the psycho spiritual、uh, landscape of the parable itself. Meaning, as soon as you say the Father is God and the two sons are, you know, two different kinds of people on this earth, you've You're pretty far from allowing the parable to work on you. You've already decided what you think the meaning is, and now it's just、uh, trying to be technical and get it right so that I totally understand God and I understand the character of the younger son and what he represents, and I understand the character of the older son and I can apply it to my life. I'm saying, mm mm. If you can say, Am I repulsed or attracted or allured by the father character? The older son, the younger son. And if you want to go further, you start saying something like this Have I ever behaved like this? And I mean all three main characters. Have I ever behaved like this? Have I ever asked for something or expected something before it was my time? Have I ever said, Give me my share of fill in the blank? And the moment I get it, I squander it or I waste it. And, and, You know, if I speak personally for a minute, I remember when my dad died. My parents were always kind of secretive about finances. None of us knew how much money they had.、Um, we assumed they had some money set aside, but we didn't know it was going to happen. And my assumption was well, when he dies, my, whatever money is there is going to go to my mom,、um, and that's going to support her. And then maybe if there's anything left over, that, that will be divided up. But I'm already, even in that, like, well, that's probably what's going to happen, a bit like the younger son. What am I thinking about? I'm thinking about inheritance. What is mine to inherit? Assuming 
that's the way it should be. I don't know if you know this or not, but Sting, the the musician Sting, um, was talking about uh, his own wealth, and he is leaving his own children nothing. And I was so shocked to hear about this. My wife was telling me about this. She read a, a, a an article, um, an interview with with Sting, where he was talking about this. He was leaving. His, he said, "Leaving them something does nothing for them. They actually inherit a bunch of problems." So I'm not here to help my kids out. And when I die, all my money is whatever, just going to be used up. Um, I don't know what exactly his financial plan was, but it wasn't the automatic assumption of I'm setting my kids up for life. I mean, that's like surprising. You wonder, what does he see about the world sting that I don't see about the world? And back to my own father's death, I was a little bit taken, though I was like, you know, playing it off a bit. And in the back of my mind, I wondered, am I going to get any money? Now, I understand he's dying, (laughs) where it's just different than the story. But again, the assumption of inheritance and how much of our culture right now is an entitlement culture where part of us expects what is due to us. Why? Under what circumstances? Why do we automatically assume I'm going to get what I'm owed. And in this case, I'm owed something that I didn't work for. That's the basic nature of inheritance. You're given something that you didn't earn. Have I ever behaved like this? And if we take it out of the sort of parental realm, which is the most arresting realm, like, again, this is these are like dreams. These archetypes are coming up. They're, everybody can recognize mom and dad, mom and dad's death. Wonder what's going to happen when they die. But how how might that trickle out into my working life? The same idea. Do I feel like I'm owed something? And or what about the older brother? Have I ever sat around thinking I did my part where the people at work around me squandered what was theirs, spent too much or cheated on their expense reports and whatever, and uh, self-indulged. And actually, the reason why I'm doing all this, being such a good boy, is that I think I'm going to get mine in the end. That the father, um, my boss, is going to give me what I am owed. And recognize me and honor me and lift me up and put a robe on me and a ring on me because I was the good boy that stayed home. Definitely he's not going to do that with people who squander stuff. That I'm absolutely sure of because um, the good boy is the way to be in the world. And I'm identified with that. And I've actually, I've been pretty damn good. Um, Have you ever been captivated by this particular complex? And it may, I mean, I was thinking about work as a relationship, but the same with the spousal relationship or a significant other or partner. How many times have you very subtly Um, And maybe mostly unconsciously thought, I've done the right thing. I'm going to get what's mine, what's owed out of this relationship. I've been faithful. I haven't cheated. I've brought home my, my fair share of the deal. Therefore, I'm owed something. That's the complex that is crystallized in this older son. And I know this is kind of like a little gender heavy on male, but I, I don't think the parable needs to be read in that fashion. I think it's just a way of getting people's attention. A father had two sons, but it could be a mother had two daughters. Or a father had a daughter and a, and a son. I mean, I, I think that the, the symbol is beyond the gender here. 
um, I think the 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 complex of the subpersonality that these characters represent is uh, more important. And then you have the father, right? Um, and you, you might say a couple curious things about the father. Like if you start to wonder, was it a good idea or not? Um, and if somebody comes to me and asks me for something, what are my motivations um, in giving them what they think they're owed? What is my, I mean, this isn't easy if you're a parent because your, your kid might say to you, I want an Xbox, you know? <laughs> and right away, something in us wakes up. And, and it's something like, what really serves my kid um, in the long run? That's probably a question if you're a half-decent parent. What serves my, my kid in the long run? Um, and also, I want my kid to like me. Um, I want him to, you know, think I'm cool. I'm a dad. I, you know, I'll play Xbox with you or something like cool dad um, or cool mom or whatever. Um, I don't know of a parent that doesn't vacillate between these realms. <laughs> In fact, I think that's part of what makes us deeply human. Um, of course, everybody wants to be liked. They, and more than that, they want to be loved. And they want to make their own children happy. And they struggle with the question of um, what makes them ultimately happy in the long run. They're, those are poles. Those are tensions that have to be held if you're a half-decent parent. And so you might identify a bit with the father and say, yeah, I've done that. I've, I've maybe given, maybe even, if I'm really honest... I've given somebody something knowing full well that they were going to squander it. Or I've given somebody something hoping and praying they won't squander it and not wanting to look at the fact that, that another part of me knows they will. Have I behaved like this? And who, who or what was I serving in doing that? Was I serving actually in the end my own self-interest, my own image of myself? I want to be the good father who says, oh, this is going to hurt me, son, but you know what? Um, go and make a life for yourself and, and away you go, you know. Um, have I ever behaved like this? And, and if we think about the other um, elements of the father in the story where um, the son returns home and there's an open arms. And, and I know it's a bit hard because if you've been like over, um, if this parable has been given to you in a context that's super theological, you think, oh, this is God hugging us when we've sinned, you know, that kind of thing. But just think about it as a reaction. Open arms, totally welcomed, slaughtering animals, and having a feast and a celebration. What is it that you're celebrating if you're the father there? Is it appropriate to celebrate the squandering of wealth? Is it or is it more like um, values are are being um, set in a kind of hierarchy where actually just to have my kid back safe and sound um, in my presence in my home that is meaning to me the the paper money the inheritance the wealth the land is meaningless. Uh, in light of the fact that my son was dead to me and now he is alive. But it's still complex. And um, and to turn that over in your mind, well, have I behaved like this? And am I drawn to this? Um, and 
And then, then of course, you have the father's reaction to the older son, which is in a way somewhat similar because the, the older son is the good boy. And, you know, I've, I've stayed at home, I've done the right thing, so forth and so on. And the, the father says to him something very interesting. He says, everything I have is yours. Um, this was never a problem. You cre- In a way, maybe the father's saying something like, you created this problem out of your own head, out of your own skewed sense of loyalty to me. You couldn't see that all around you, there was the fattened calf waiting to be slaughtered and to be celebrated. And then Jesus, as the storyteller, just leaves it there, just leaves us hanging in the wind. And we don't know. We don't know what happens to this family. We don't know what happens to these kids. We don't know what happens to the older son. Does he remain bitter and repressed and and resentful and angry? And um, and does the younger son, the moment his stomach is full, leave the house again and say, you know, I'm out of here. You know, thanks for filling my belly. Now off to Vegas. We don't know. We don't know how the father feels about any of this because Technically speaking, he has no inheritance. It's already been divided up among his sons. We don't know how he feels. And that's not the point of the parable. That's like future tripping on it. It's supposed to leave us right there in the the tensions between these characters. And I'm only dealing with the characters. What about the other symbols in there? The robe, the ring. Um, These are deeply archetypal and powerful symbols. The robe and the ring and the fattened calf and a long way off and open arms. and, And what is our feeling about each of these things, I think, is an important question. So let me just make some, um, a couple more additional observations. Be- and just to reiterate the, the title, the title of the podcast is Being Worked by Parables. And I think to begin to read and listen on this level is to open up yourself to the possibility of being worked by the image. When you begin to feel that you have behaved like one or more of these characters, or or even that you've longed to behave like one or more of these characters. It does what I'm saying dreams do, which is it puts pressure on the ego, who we think we are in the world, and also the way we think things should be. Um, the way our egoic waking self has said the world should be like fill in the blank, the parable, every layer of it is confronting that. And sure enough, peeling back layers um, of that story, the story that we've been telling ourselves about who we are, suddenly begins to be worked. And I think something for me began to emerge um, just in sort of ordinary life. So uh, we know of, uh, my wife and I know of some people who are going through a similar situation that was dealing with inheritance. So we started talking about this parable. And I began to see something about it. It began to become clear to me that at different times in my own life, I have acted like both of these sons. I've at times squandered and done a bit of wild living and taken advantage of the opportunities and connections and resources that came into my life of no, by no choice of my own through my parents and through uh, the the world that I grew up in um, and I and I could see that I've 
squandered this. And at other times, I also recognized myself as like being like the older son, where no, many times I did the right thing. Um, I got married to the right person, and and um, I you know quit doing drugs um, when I was in high school, and and um, uh, went to a Christian college, and and. Um, you know, worked for a church in a Christian school. Part of me, this was the good boy story. And and the, the very, very uh, almost, Im- well, not almost, directly embarrassing reality of that is that one part of me also thought, if I do the right thing, I'll really get what I'm owed. Um, instead of being like a like a drunken idiot, like the first son saying, give me what I'm owed and I'm just going to go waste it and on wild living. This is a much more subtle and I think darker version of that, which is I'm trying to get what I think I'm owed, but I'm doing it by trying to portray such a good boy image. That's pretty, that's dark, you know, that's not something to, um, um, that's not something that I'm proud of, but to say that these two principles operate in my life. And sometimes I vacillate back and forth between the two. And sometimes I act like a wounded child, which I think is maybe the the core archetype here with these two sons. They're both wounded kids and they're living out their woundedness in very different ways. One is living out their woundedness largely through rebellion and waste, and the other is um, living out their woundedness through bitterness and being a victim and saying, woe is me, I'm never given enough, but they're still acting like wounded children. They've yet to grow up. The question is, I think from a psychological point of view, what is this parable inviting us into? And I think in some sense, the parable is inviting us us into, and I'm making some broad statements about it, into discovering a bit of the own of our own inner father. And 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 I think our capacity to take a step toward that inner father means that the only person that can speak to these wounded elements of it is our own um, nurturing, generative, adult father figure or mother figure, you could say, that needs to step forward and begin to speak to these wounded parts of ourselves. I do think it's interesting that the father does no shaming. He doesn't say, you idiot, you've wasted my money and sleeping around. And of course you end up in the pigs. I knew this is exactly what would happen. And he doesn't do that to the older son either. Like saying, um, all you ever did was play by the rules because in the end you wanted to get what was yours. He treats both characters with a kind of compassion, which I think is a psychological clue. If we want to grow up, we are invited to grow into the father figure, to have compassion on these wounded, split off parts of who we are. And I think really, honestly, it's not one or the other. Both of these kinds of wounded children are activated all the time in us if we're super honest. And I think something of the parable is putting pressure. Don't expect God to sweep in and, you know, pick you up like the little wounded kid saying, it's all right, I'm glad you're here, let's eat a meal. Only you can do that for yourself would be a bit of my interpretation, what I'm hearing in this story. The question is, how do we cultivate this father-like image. And that, I think, I just leave hanging out there. 
What would it look like for you to grow up? How would you treat the wounded parts of yourself? And sometimes the best way to get out at that is to take note of how you treat other people who are wounded. Now, you might treat them with shame, disdain, disgust, um, shunning, and resentment. And if that's the case, I guarantee you that's how you're going to treat yourself. But if you are able to treat people in your life that you love that are making some bad decisions with a little compassion and ask yourself, um, how, how would I want to treat them? Um, how, how does the, the, the father in me, so to speak, and I don't mean that in any kind of arrogant or hierarchical way, but the, the nurturing generative parent of me, how would they speak to someone who's acting in such a wounded childlike fashion? Um, and if the answer is, I would treat them with compassion and saying, I understand how you feel. I think the invitation is, how do I begin to turn that to the parts of my personality that get activated, that run the show, that um, vacillate between um, rebellion and being a victim or whatever, fill in the blank for your own particular complexes, um, which is another way of saying, and now I think we can do a little uh, theorizing when it comes to theology. Christianity at its best teaches that the divine is within. So the question is not, how does God out there treat the world? I think the question is something like, how does the divine indwelling in me begin to treat these wounded parts of myself? And how can um, these more wounded parts of myself experience some healing? Because if there's going to be any kind of celebration, they all need to be at the table. The soul, the wounded parts, the ego, all need to come to the table from a psychological point of view. That's what integration uh, looks like. It's not just cleaning house and getting rid of all the things you don't like. Complexes are complexes. If you your whole life have been a rebel, it's going to be something that you struggle with. If your whole life you've been a good boy it's uh, or a good girl, it's going to be something that is going to be an ongoing struggle. But who is the one that speaks to these parts of ourselves? That is, I think... Um, how uh, that is the sort of invitation, the aim of this particular parable, inviting us into that kind of conversation. And the only way to get there is to allow the characters the the, and the images and the symbols and the scenarios to work on us, to work on us and work on us and work on us. Do I recognize myself or what do I recognize about the world in these stories? And, and to get curious enough where that hardened layer of the ego that's so certain about the way things are just becomes a little more um, uh, penetrable, a little more perme permeable, <laughs> uh, the ability to be, to be permeated, uh, porous, uh, becomes thinner, that thin space, because that's where change and transformation happens in the thin spaces, when the ego is softened a bit and disrupted a bit and disrobed a bit, just enough so some of the deeper truths can come out. So that's about as far as I want to go today. That's that's uh, We've lost the plot when it comes to parables. I hope you heard something that was provocative, interesting, challenging, um, and created a bit of a thin place for your own psycho-spiritual wanderings. Peace.